Hello, everybody, and welcome to a kind of unusual episode of When Movies Were Good down here in Melbourne, Australia, with your host, Rachel, and her continuing only guest star, Matt. We are now recording over the phone because we are still in lockdown. We still can't visit another person's house unless you're directly related to them or in a bubble or whatever with them. And we are having problems with the internet. It's probably more my internet, I think, that keeps cutting out all the time. And we just decided after we recorded this episode already a few days ago, we couldn't get the sound going. Matt, sadly, well, it, was, it was worse than just the sound not going. It was like uh, the video was going for a few seconds, then the whole thing froze. It was like 50 minutes of the one the picture frozen on the screen. <laughs> so... We thought we don't know when we're going to be able to record, you know, the pure audio and everything that, that Matt loves so much and that I love so much when we can do it in person and it's obviously a better free-flowing conversation because that's essentially what our podcast is. And we decided, look, you know, there's got to be another option. So we're doing recording over the phone. So if it sounds like something out of the mid-'80s, uh, you know, a radio show with people calling in, that's because that's kind of the technology that we're using. So we wanted to get that out of the way. <laughs> yeah, one step, yeah, one step above the two landlines talking to each other with a tape recorder position nearby. <laughs> that's right. So I'm at the resort studios, a.k.a. my back flat, and that's at his family home, which is really only about 10 k's down the road, but we can't do it at the moment. So welcome to When Movies Were Good. Thank you for joining us, and apologies for the delay in this broadcast simply because we had uh, quote-unquote tech issues. Now, we had already set up with everybody a Marlena Dietrich double. We were doing Destry Rides Again, 1954, and A Touch of Evil, a film I've wanted to see for a long time, 1958. We are still doing them. They will be on the next broadcast. But Matt actually came up with a, an idea in the interim, and he suggested, hey, why don't we finish off at some point the Boris Karloff Frankenstein films? And I thought, you know what? Let's just do it now. We'll get that one uh, done and dusted. So we are actually I had a feeling doing... you'd pounce on that idea. I do. I'm Matt knows that I'm um, a horror movie fan. So any chance, and I really am enjoying my exploration through the universal, dark universe, monster universe. Well, it was the monster universe back then, and they tried to reboot it as the dark universe uh, with not too much success. I mean, I did see their new version of The Mummy, and I was like, mm, maybe not. Uh, so we are doing, of course, the other two films that Boris Karloff uh, starred as the monster in. So that is, of course, one of the great sequels of all time, which is considered one of the best sequels to any film of all time, Bride of Frankenstein, 1935. And then we'll just jump a bit forward then, going forward in, in from there, The Son of Frankenstein, 1939. And after that, I think Boris was like, yep, I'm kind of done with this. I'm going to move on to some other character roles. So let's start with Bride of Frankenstein. Now, Matt, we um, we were sort of uh, interested in this film. Uh, we thought it was going to be more about the Bride of Frankenstein, but it's sort of like a hook to get you in. And it is actually part of Mary Shelley. We must remember always that these films are... The Frankenstein films are based off the amazing novel by Mary Shelley that she wrote a long time before that. This is a subplot in the novel. So, Matt, what are your thoughts on Bride of Frankenstein? 
Well, I did uh, think that it is ironic, like you said, that such an iconic costume and hairstyle actually in the history of film only featured for about two minutes. But that often that's how long it takes for a stereotypical image to come into fruition. And for both the films we've looked at, it appears that they've established in its purest form all the stereotypical Hollywood horror tropes that we kind of associate with Frankenstein and its genre, but which weren't necessarily in the first one. So uh, it perfected the big heavy storms and all those types of cinematic features that we take for granted now for that genre. I did uh, enjoy, though, that the plotline didn't excessively indulge in in excess of a background story, as it were. So Frankenstein, she really showed her purpose. The recap of the first film, it was done to perfect tight editing. It, so it really flowed well. It was like a comic book. Yeah, it, it was. I actually really, as as um, a fan of horror franchises, it's great when they recap at the start what happened in the previous instalment. Unfortunately, horror franchises now just seem to reboot everything every second or third movie anyway, so it's, it's pointless trying to really follow the storyline. But I actually, I agree with you. I really appreciated at the start and almost sort of they had... Um, the character of Mary Shelley herself, and she was sort of telling the story, and that's how we got into it. So we'll just quickly recap some information about Bride of Frankenstein. It is available on most major streaming platforms, iTunes, YouTube, um, obviously through their paid service. I'm sure it's on Amazon as well, and you can buy them in packs with other films online, and obviously you can still buy them in DVD packs too. So, and if you have a NordVPN, I think you can trick your computer into thinking you're in a different country that allows you to have a film in one country but not the other. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. So it's readily available. It, it always has been, I think, as soon as um, all these technologies came out with, you know, films being put on different formats, it was always one along with its um, original film that was able to be accessed. So essentially we've got 1935 the film was released directed by James Whale, who directed the first film. We have Boris Karloff now starring in this film as the monster. The beautiful Colin Clive, who I just, you know, just get so sad when I read about what happened to him. An absolutely stunning man who came back and played um, Dr. Frankenstein in this. Valerie Hobson. Elsa Lancaster, who was an English actress who hadn't had too much success in Hollywood and got cast as... Mary Shelley at the start of the film and also was playing The Bride of Frankenstein as well. Uh, so she's here. Essentially, we've got um, a follow-on from the first film, which is a subplot to Mary Shelley's novel. So Frankenstein wants to leave his life of these experiments behind after everything kind of goes wrong in the first film and he's rescued. But Dr. Pretorius, which is a great name, his mentor kidnaps Frankenstein's wife and now Frankenstein has to help create the new creature because his monster from the first film survived to save his wife. And that essentially is the bride of Frankenstein who makes a appearance sort of in the last, spoiler alert, 10 minutes of the film. So we've got music by Franz Waxman. I was sitting there, I didn't realise Franz Waxman did the music, and I was like, wow, this music's beautiful, it's amazing. And that was, of course it was. Yeah. And one of those great composers that appears everywhere in that period. 
Oh, he's, I mean, gosh, just the breadth of work uh, that he did, all the different films. I mean, you and I have already commentated on several films where he's done the music for, and it's just, you know, could this guy be any more talented? Like, wow, what an amazing legacy he's left behind of just these beautiful cinematic scores that he's been involved with. Too many to sort of count uh, down what now. Is- well, when it comes to music, there seems to be this unwritten rule that talent tends to follow where the money is available most of the time, and it's why there's quite a lot of uh, good composition uh, coming out right now for video games, because there's that, that demand for sort of long, epic uh, musical uh, pieces and not just uh, beeps and uh, strums here and there. Yeah, that's, yeah, you're actually right. Is that sort of genre ramps up even more. It's never been anything that's attracted me. I mean, I used to play pinball games back in the 80s, and that was about my gaming experience. But um, Might be hard to send right. a string quartet to a pinball game. <laughs> that's right. So, look, this film is highly watchable just because you want to see... Frankenstein as much as you can, and Frankenstein's really raising a lot of cane in this film. You want to see Dr. Frankenstein again, and they have all these archetypes of these sort of evil characters, you know, Dr. Pretorius as well, and, you know, Elizabeth Frankenstein's wife, uh, these massively gothic, amazing sets. I think the cinematography was fantastic as well, the use of it, again, in black and white, but the use of the colours. And we were discussing the production design or the makeup design. Obviously, they've redone what they did for Boris in, from the first film and maybe even improved on it a little bit. His face has changed a little, as, as it does when you get older. Um, but, the, but the makeup design for The Bride of Frankenstein is just one of those iconic things that even young people may not necessarily know where that hairstyle comes from. But Matt and I, were, when we did our last version of this podcast, I was actually surprised to find out her hair was actually auburn with the white streaks at the side. But, um, Matt, you can probably talk a bit more about that. That's just how it photographed really well for the black and white film that they were using. Well, that's what often happens in black and white photography where you need to use color tricks to get the effects you want. And so in black and white, quite often you'll want to have quite high contrast, especially in a drama or a or a horror film where you want to get that uh, real stark difference of the light and the darkness. And so, for example, often if you're uh, taking a photo of a landscape in black and white and let's say you have a a big blue sky with lots of white clouds, it's a popular thing where if you want to have the clouds really white and stand out against a darker sky, what you can Mm -hmm. do is you'll put a red filter over the lens and that will make the clouds really pop. And so that was a common thing that was done a lot of uh, times, and not just necessarily for subtle effects. There was actually a very great uh, special effects stunt done in the early days uh, where there was a, it was a religious film, and it was meant to portray, I think, a saint that was helping cure someone of leprosy or something, or something with some sort of rather unpleasant skin condition and -hmm. what happened during the scening of this particular the filming of this particular scene um the actor would have had uh distinctive colored makeup which would have looked like the sort of scabs or scars on their face and by during the shooting changing the filter on the lens that actually made the marks disappear so it was like they'd had a miraculous transformation right 
Oh, that's yeah. I mean, it's just amazing, actually. The, the depth of what they could even do back then. I mean, we were talking about what they could do with King Kong and films from this era. We've got to remember these films were in the 1930s, especially the first film was 1931. This is only four years after that. You look at the sets in the, you know, the castle or where they were conducting these experiments. Of course, we had to have Colin Clive as Frankenstein come out with the great is alive, you know, because, you know, that's the marquee line that everyone wants to hear. <laughs> Um, Fortunately, that's the only uh, line of real um, ham acting we have in this movie. I have a few <laughs> little complaints about the third one. Yes, that's right. Well, we sort of, um, as we step into that one shortly, I think, um, well, considering who the lead in that film was, it sort of suited what he could do. But, yeah, so essentially, essentially it's kind of, again, Frankenstein's journey because we only see really the bride right at the end of the film and then everything starts to go horribly wrong. And essentially, Frankenstein makes that decision, and he, as he says to, you know, the doctor, uh, the other doctor, um, he says to Henry and Elizabeth, you go and live, and they leave the where they all are, and then he says to Pretorius and his bride, because obviously he's copped on that both, that all of the three of them are no good, and then say, you, you guys can stay here, because we belong dead. And as Henry and Elizabeth flee the castle, the monster looks at the bride, sheds a tear and, and then he pulls the lever to their supposed destruction. Okay, because there are sequels to this. So, <laughs> so um, yes, yeah, a very uh, poetic ending. Yeah, very poetic ending. And I, you know, actually on further reflection, I was saying of the first two films, it's such an abrupt ending. Although I don't mind that because as a lover of Hello, uh, in case you hadn't noticed, uh, soap operas and you know, film series that go on and miniseries and all the rest of it, the great 80s miniseries I watched as a child, it's, you know, that's the end of that episode and then we're going to wait and see. So ideally with these sorts of films, you want them to have that abrupt ending and it can either just stop there and you've got to imagine what happens or they're going to make us a sequel, which they did. They did make us a sequel here. This was the last time they could... uh they could get um, Boris into this role. And that's fine. He, you know, I think three times is probably enough for him. But this time they've paired him up with two amazing sort of co-stars. They were in, they were in a group of three, really, in this film. Um, and they, I guess, kind of sort of got equal billing, although they, a lot of people often describe that Bella Lugosi, who's in this film playing Igor in this sequel to Bride of Frankenstein, the third film in the series, he actually had the lower billing, but I don't necessarily see it that way. So we have the great Basil Rathbone, Boris returning as the monster, and Bella Lugosi for the film after this, which is Son of Frankenstein. Again, another Universal monster film, 1939. Matt, what are your thoughts on this film? Well, that is really the movie where... Uh, like I was saying before, every Hollywood horror cliche, cliche of this era really comes solidified, especially the dark and stormy night, because the the big storm that introduces the awakening of the monster yet again is just a, seems to go on forever. The in the first Frankenstein film, the structures they were working within looked relatively normal, but now the same manner it's like the walls have become so sharply angled the shadows become longer the fires become bigger of course we have 
that uh, scene where Basil Rathbone is talking in his living room and we have the camera set behind the fireplace. That mm-hmm. was uh, one of the uh, cliché shots that uh, <laughs> many filmmakers would uh, come to uh, have opinions of a diverse character on in the coming years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was um, obviously... Again, they've moved up in sort of how they can show us what's happening in the story because there was a lot of, like, I don't think the term swashbuckling is right, but there were a lot of people swinging around on ropes and doing lots of stunts and, you know, Frankenstein's going off. and and But there was a lot of comedy in this film, I felt, as well. So let's just do a really quick recap for the audience. Spoiler alerts, of course. So we have um, this film coming out in 1939, directed by... Roland B. Lee, starring, of course, Boris Karloff, Bella Lugosi, and Basil Rathbun. He's now taking on the mantle of, quote-unquote, Dr. Frankenstein. So, again, a lot of themes and are still adapted from Mary Shelley's original novel. We have some lovely music by Frank Skinner. I think that worked really well in this film as well. So, essentially, just a really quick recap of the story. So, I guess, uh, I'm not sure how far we're jumping jumping forward in time now, but all of a sudden um, we've got one of Dr. Frankenstein's, and this is the character that Colin Clive played, I believe. Um, one of um, Dr. Frankenstein's sons, Wolf, which is a great name, revives his father's I'll homatose... I'll bet that an abbreviation of Wolfgang. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love those German names. They're awesome. Um, revives his father's comatose monster in order to somehow restore his family's legacy when they return to the town and the castle. And um, I never work out the logic on that step. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's one of those plot um, contrivances that never really seems to make any sense, but you sort of have to go along with it. And then strangely, uh, you know, the, the monster who has been sort of being in a caretaker mode, sort of lying comatose, being cared for by Eagle, who is this demented person associated with, uh, you know, Frankenstein. And, uh, and yeah, the, the horror ensues from there as he is sort of, re- Frankenstein is reanimated and then um, all hell breaks loose yet again. So another abrupt ending to the film as well. So what were your... What were your other thoughts on this film, Matt? Well, this was where they were clearly trying to flesh out the storyline a bit more. You can tell just by the film length, because the first two only went a little bit over an hour. This one went for about an hour and a half. So yes, they yes, are trying right. to bring a much fuller script in and bringing in more complexity to the characters and yeah. the storyline, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, because this is, that extra time I think is actually given room in the number three for a few plot holes which I don't think were properly addressed. For example, the fact that they're making out that Frankenstein's original monster can't die, like effectively they're saying, I think you've brought the source of life into it, it can't just go out. But then I'm thinking, why didn't the bride die, uh, keep living as well from last time? Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, uh, I hadn't really uh, read the plot beforehand. I just uh, went into it um, fresh in my mind like any new viewer to the movie would. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. Son of Frankenstein, okay, did the bride and Frankenstein uh, escape from the rubble and end up making it work? Uh, but no, um, <laughs> that was a, a very, very different. I um, 
uh, found out that nope, it uh, was just that the uh, another Frankenstein scientist decided that what unleashed horror once won't do it again. It's like keep continuously going to the Greyhound races and thinking, okay, I will back a winner this time. <laughs> well, yeah, essentially, and uh, you know. But you're sort of giving the audience what they want, you know what I mean? So I know just from being oh, yeah. in so, so many other horror franchises, when they try to get too far away from what the audience wants, uh, which is essentially they want the monster, they want the bad guy, you know, that's what the audience is there for. Uh, and on the then, inverse, that's why the Bond films have continued for so long. Yeah, that's right. The, they're giving the audience what they want. There's a, um, a horror franchise that I've been a fan of since I was a kid. I won't mention it here but because I'll start going off on a tangent that we don't need. But, uh, they've, you know, they've rebooted the franchise yet again, and they've completely forgotten what the audience was there for. They think one of the original actresses from the original film is what the audience wants to see. And it's, she's not what the audience wants to see. They want to see the boogeyman. They want to see the monster from the first film. They do not want to see her. You know what I mean? If she's around, great. But that's not what the, especially the male members of the franchise, that's not what they're interested in. And I'm like, how could you get it so wrong? So the last film that they released, you know, you know, it was sort of successful because it came out and there wasn't really anything around it like it at the time. But ultimately, everyone came out disappointed because it's like, you're not giving us what we want to see from the other films. And unfortunately, the actress in this franchise thinks it's about her and it's not. So I'm glad that they actually, they've always had, in these two sequels, they've had Frankenstein at the forefront because that's essentially, you know, he just freaks the audience out, but the audience, you know, loves to hate him, you know what I mean? And especially when they give him these tender moments too. And what you were saying with the actress for that other series, it could have gone that way with Boris Koloff. If he continued with the series, it would have become more about whether he alone could hold the role. Yes, that's right. Um, I suppose the only thing is because he's all done up in the monster's garb and everything, as long as people can see that visage of Frankenstein, I suppose he is giving the audience what they want. But sometimes, it's unfortunate sometimes they forget that the audiences are the ones that make these films popular and successful. And you really need to go in and say, what does the audience want to see? We, we've got to tweak it and we've got to take them on a journey and a storyline as well. But, you know, we can't give them everything that they want all at once. But, you know, unfortunately, I think that's modern filmmaking, whereas here they sort of knew what the audience wanted. So, again, I thought the, I thought the bride could have been in this film. I was disappointed that she wasn't. So, yeah, essentially this is about Frankenstein's son reanimating Frankenstein. We've got the character of Eagle. They had to have Bella Lugosi and um, Boris Karloff in this franchise together at one point, although they have made some other films together. Um, I haven't seen those yet, but definitely on my list of things to watch. And I thought this was a great character role for Bella Lugosi playing Eagle. I thought he was hilarious in the there's a big courtroom scene folks in this um in this film where he really gets to display a bit of comic timing and stuff i thought he was great uh i actually thought in some ways he did overshadow boris simply because he had more dialogue and more chance to actually be in a character role whereas even though we did get a bit more dialogue from frankenstein in here as well it just wasn't up to what 
uh, Bella was being asked to do playing Eagle, he really had a character role to play, which suited his natural accent and everything. So, And we also remarked in our last version of this podcast that I think one of the things that didn't work as well in this film, and Matt, I think you agreed with me, is that all of the lead actors were quite statuesque in their own way. So we had Boris coming in at 5'11", and then they put the lifts on his shoes. But Basil Rathbun was 6'3", or so, and Bella was 6'1". So the monster didn't really have the imposing, um, you know, imposing look above the other two. Often when they were, the three of them were in scenes together, yeah, obviously it's a bit more broad and bulky and, and stumbling around and stuff, but... It's sort of like, whereas when you see someone like Glenn Strange playing him, who, who took over the role after Lon Chaney did, he was six foot five anyway. And then with the lifts on the shoes, he was close to seven foot. And the lovely Fred Gwynn, who played Herman Munster, was six foot five as well. And he was about seven foot when they put the lifts on him, obviously using a very similar um, makeup design for Herman Munster as well. So I don't know. I felt that that was something that maybe that when they were casting the film, they could have looked at too. I'm not sure. What do you think about that? Well, all they would have had to do to not make it quite as uh, jarring the apparent similarity of height between Karloff and Rathbone is simply to not have have that one scene in the lab where they're really close to each other because you can see uh, uh, very simply that they're not actually that different in height. But the fact that they show that they know how to use perspective very well in other parts of the film, film. For example, I love when uh, Thor, uh, not Thor, uh, when uh, Frankenstein's monster uh, has seen um, the death of Bella Lugosi and is in a rage from uh, the death of what he thinks is his friend, and then he starts throwing furniture and everything effortlessly into this uh, pit in the mm-hmm. lab, and it yes. just looks so effortless that he's just... Uh, moving it all around like twigs. So obviously they must have had, like, costume props, which were ridiculously light and so easy for Karloff in costume to toss them everywhere. And so Mm -hmm. to be able to use effects like that, but to do something as basic a mistake as putting two ridiculously tall actors together and then having one of them say afterwards, he was gigantic, the fear within me, (laughs) when all they would have had to do was something like... uh, uh, have a shot of the monster and then cut over to uh, Basil Rathbone and uh, see a shoulder come over him with a huge hand, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They could have, they should have really, or had him standing on some sort of lift or something, obviously that the audience couldn't see, because that was really important to make sure that you know it's not too over the top, but there is that big physical difference between Frankenstein and quote unquote normal men. So yeah, we basically well, have. It yeah. doesn't have to be complicated because, like, uh, and it can often be quite subtle because in a lot of Humphrey Bogart films, for example, he wasn't that tall, I think, not even barely 5'10", but because mm-hmm. he's often playing tough guys, you can, when you know about it, you actually notice that often the camera's position fairly low, so he looks a bit more imposing, but it's not done to a ridiculous extent. Yes, that's right. I think that that balance is sort of what they needed to go for. It's sort of it's it's only a minor quibble, but that was something I really noticed because these films are such visual films as well. I mean, Matt and I remarked for the first two films um, when we were doing Frankenstein and Dracula that these could easily translate really well onto a massive stage, and you could essentially just do a stage version of these films because the sets just have that look about them as well. So, well, have um, you seen Metropolis? 
I haven't. I've only seen like clips of it. I haven't seen all of it. No. Well, we do have to do an episode on that, but I, I've often thought that uh, the mass choreography of different characters and the fact that it's a silent film makes me think it would actually probably work well as a ballet. Yeah, I we mean, we're completely I'm, telling the story visually. Visually, yeah. I mean, there's so many things that, uh, rather than Hollywood and, and certain things remaking movies, maybe they should look at doing them in just different ways with different sorts of um, deliverances of the story. So ballets, operas, things like that, because it gets a little bit tedious with them just remaking everything and they're not that good anyway. <laughs> so, so essentially we finish um, Son of Frankenstein with uh, Wolf knocking the monster into a pit of sulphur. Gee, where, where did that come from? Beneath the laboratory. He saves they made his son. an excuse of there being a Roman bath there originally. <laughs> yeah. And then Wolf leaves the keys to Frankenstein Castle to the vi- uh, villagers of the town. Uh, good luck to you. We're leaving. And that was the abrupt ending of that film until we get to, I believe, Ghost of Frankenstein, where we have... Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. taking over the role. I'm curious to see that. And then we have Glenn Strange taking over the role for one film that Matt and I will watch eventually, which is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, <laughs> which um, was the last one, that Frankenstein film that, that Universal made, so until the modern films were made. And, uh, yeah, so... It's when you've gone really... Abbott and Costello, you know you've gone all the way, the full cycle. Yeah, you've really gone from you take the first Frankenstein film to that. It's like, wow, okay. But essentially a lot of um, horror franchises end up going to the comedy element, that one that I was addressing earlier with the actress. I mean, half of the latest instalment was just this misplaced comedy that didn't seem to work, and everyone's like, uh, is this a horror film or what's going on here? So it just, the whole thing was weird, and unfortunately a lot of modern horror, especially ones rebooting franchises and stuff, they go for, because there are younger audiences they're trying to appeal to, too. I get it, but it's, ugh. Yeah, but uh, anyway, so those were those two films. Both of them highly enjoyable, just for the camp factor on them alone. And, and in this case, camp doesn't necessarily mean bad. It's just a feature of what the films were. Anything with a with a green man walking around, half dead, you know, uh, superhuman strength, you know. Uh, but I actually did enjoy some of the scientific explanations they did offer for why he was the way he was in um, in Son of Frankenstein, even if it didn't necessarily make any sense. But you know, I still enjoyed that. I thought some of the close up shots of you know the microscope and stuff well, that was pretty good for them. <laughs> well, it was a clever way to introduced some of the primitive science that would have helped inspire Shelley's original book because uh, don't forget when Mary Shelley and um, and per- her husband Percy were around that was when um, it was for it was becoming very popular to have public demonstrations of uh, uh, different chemistry experiments and uh, other physics experiments uh, where there was less um, religious, religious fundamentalism against it, and, one, and we've probably seen at high school demonstrations um, electricity being able to make frog lakes and, and stuff spasm, and so oh, wow. yep. yeah, so that would have um, given an idea of how electricity could, could artificially instill life. I mean, we know it it doesn't actually work like that, but it, it does give an idea of uh, what was probably going through some of the brain and and uh, trying to create a more complex uh, ideal of how that uh, theory of electricity introducing life could um, help 
uh, artificially create it. Yeah, I mean, I just yeah, I mean, I thought they gave it a really good shot, and I I did enjoy a lot of aspects of the script of um, of the film. So yeah, to finish off two films, if you're gonna get into the Frankenstein franchise, you're gonna see it all the way through. I probably will independently watch the other films in the Frankenstein franchise, and and perhaps I have no it. doubt. Yeah, <laughs> especially once I get to Abbott and Stello. So. Um, I, I will definitely watch that. And, in fact, I'm really keen to check out as much of the Monster Universe from Universal in that period of film as I can because it's right up my alley. It's just so camp and so much fun. So, um, And just such such beautiful, amazing films with just the production design, the cinematography, the makeup design, costume design, the whole thing. As camp as some of them are, it's fantastic and some of these legends of the classic films. So please join us. Next time, um, we may still be recording in our old school setup here. I'm sure we actually probably will, given the people that run our government. So we are doing Destry Rides again. We're doing the Marlena Dietrich double, so 1954, A Touch of Evil, uh, one of Orson Welles' most famous films. Marlena's in that one as well, 1958. So, um, Matt, do you want to just quickly let everyone know where we are on social media and we'll call it a day? Yes, so we are finally now available as a pure audio stream on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as our original YouTube channel. And if you can give us thumbs up and reviews and all that, it helps us get in front of more people. You can't do it on Spotify, but you can leave a Apple Podcasts and YouTube reviews and thumbs up. We prefer as high a rating as possible, but any you feel that is suitable is welcome. <laughs> And you can also check out all our social media. So whatever platform, whether it be Twitter or Instagram you happen to be on, you'll get notified as soon as possible when our latest content is available. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt, via the telephone. And thank You're you welcome. to all of uh, thank you to all of you out there who um, are listening to two friends converse about old films and having a laugh while they do it. So as usual, in the meantime, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and have a good one.